it's unknown. This CR Flounder Podcast. Wishing you nothing but. Peace and love, and welcome to the Art of Floundering podcast and episode 9 in our Countdown to Soon series, where I attempt to illustrate, quote, life, at least from my perspective, following a traumatic accident that I had in 2016. The title of this episode is Pain Mismanagement, and I want to apologize up front. I'm going to have a few disclaimers before I even touch on my pain, quote, management history. First off, this is not medical advice. This is just the experience of a dipshit, a.k.a. yours truly. This series is just a response to feedback that I received in spine clinics, pain clinics, ketamine clinics, clinics, waiting rooms, etc., 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 that there wasn't enough real content about what this experience is really like. The second disclaimer is this is not a subject I enjoy talking about. The reason is pain has become politicized in today's world. I'm not a fan of politics. I would like to think that I've come from the world of getting things done, which means there's compromise and nuance. Unfortunately, I don't see a lot of nuance in the pain management community. Having said that, everybody's body is unique. What works for me may not work for others. And just because it doesn't work for me doesn't mean that others should not have access to whatever it is that works for them. Guess what I'm trying to say is there are many different opinions to when it comes to pain management. What is addiction? What is physical tolerance? At what point are these medications doing more damage than good? My opinion is that if something works for someone that is in my situation, they should be allowed to have it. I believe it's a human right. That's just where I land on it. So if I talk about bad experiences with certain pain management methodology, so to speak, please know that it was just a bad experience for me. And be aware that many, many people out there have a variety of experiences. Bottom line, nobody should be denied access to any medication that helps minimize the degree of suck in someone's lives. Finally, while my opinion on a lot of the subjects I'm going to talk about have changed over time, I'm quite certain that in the future they'll be different than they are today.
I reserve the right to evolve, just like the rest of us. In my case, I'm unable to do an adequate job discussing my pain journey without also talking about my experiences with 12-step programs. I am currently 57 years old. I have quit drinking since 2010. I don't keep track of the exact days, minutes, or any of that anymore. However, a 12-step program, specifically Alcoholics Anonymous, played a role in my early recovery. I come from a pretty robust family history of alcoholism on the male side of the family. In almost all cases, the alcoholism would lead to early deaths. In July of 2000, my father, who was 59, passed away. Alcoholism played a major role in his early passing. I was always a heavy drinker, but I was always able to keep it under control. I used to call it binge sobriety. In my younger days, when I needed to be sober for school, sober for the Marines, sober for work, I can do it. I could toe the line. But when it came time to party, I always noticed I was able to drink a lot more than my peers. Now, over time, as I grew up, I would have periods where I wouldn't drink at all. But then, once again, when I would drink, the old patterns would come back. Why bother if you're not going to get screwed up? When I got divorced in 2008, I think my body just reached a point where it couldn't physically process any more alcohol. I would almost instantly black out. I'm not joking. After one or two drinks, I would black out. You would think that would lead me to want to quit drinking. No. Instead, I would do things like write myself little notes, little post-it notes before I'd start drinking. This is where your wallet is. Don't panic. You're at home. Your keys, wallet, and phone are over in this drawer. Because I knew when I'd come out of a blackout, I was always disoriented. And I was like, well, look, I know I'm going to black out, so let's just make that process a little bit easier. And I can go on and on and on, but the point of this is not some kind of recovery talk. I just reached a point where booze was a problem. And my daughter was very young. Got me to stop drinking was I didn't want to be a fuck as a father. So I reached out to AA. AA showed me that I wasn't alone on a lot of things. Not just drinking. Maybe the worries I had about finances and all the other stuff at life were shared. That was helpful knowing that. That made me feel more comfortable with my weirdness. The other thing that AA gave me was uh, somewhere to go and help break a pattern. Especially on weekends. Somewhere to go. The other thing that AA gave me was it reinforced a message that I've always believed in if you're going through hard times, some of the best ways of getting through those hard times is helping others. It helps you forget about your stuff. 
Now, that is a solid message. There are a lot of things that I don't like about AA. Before I point them out, I want to make you aware of my belief system. There are many paths to the top of Mount Fuji. We're all nuanced in how we're trying to do this thing. I'm not here to judge anybody's vibe. If it's working for you, beautiful. This is going to sound rather cliche, but I have a good friend that AA is really working for. And I'm confident that he is better of a human being and a friend and a citizen to this world because of AA. Once again, I believe there are different types of people in this universe and we need all types. Certain types are going to be the types of personality that AA is going to not jive with. I'm saying that I believe the key to that is to accept that, not lash out on somebody else it's working for. Here are the problems that I had with AA. I don't like the message of you are a completely worthless human being. There's nothing you can do about it. There is no cure. There is no hope. Humankind is incapable of curing you. The only hope that you have is this fill-in-the-blank. In the case of AA, you have a disease. There is no cure for this disease. If left on its own, you'll die. While there is no cure, the only hope you have is AA. In short of that, you'll relapse and die. So it's this kind of you're severely broken, only we have the solution. And that's reinforced through statements such as, hey, please don't refer to any literature that's not conference approved. What is that all about? The other thing, let me paint a picture. Someone is new to Alcoholics Anonymous. They come to a meeting and they're told to find a sponsor. Now, this is anonymous. People just give their first names. But the ideal AA sponsor, sponsee membership, is one in which the sponsee does what the sponsor tells them to do, without question. Hey, what are you doing thinking for yourself? You're thinking landed you in this situation. Why don't you wise up and just do what you're told? Share your deepest, darkest secrets. Yet there's no background checks on these sponsors. They could have really bad criminal records. They could be wanted. They could have sex crimes. They could be pedophiles. They could be active pedophiles. This was after I stopped going to meetings, but one of the people in my particular home group who was a doctor, pretty prominent doctor as far as in the recovery community because he, was, did a, he really helped a lot of addicts through their withdrawals. Having said that, apparently, he had some run-ins with child porn. And there was an active investigation into his activities that indicated he was getting ready to get busted red-handed with even more. Now, he wound up committing suicide before arrests were made. This was a sponsor. There's tales and tales and tales that can do a better job than I. And they can talk about the 13th step. More often than not, it's the man, the males, taking advantage of the vulnerable women. But never underestimate the human capacity to be a shit towards one another. 
And just because behavior statistically exhibits itself in one particular pattern, make no mistake about it, we've got to protect everybody. The other thing, AA is like this programming. And I believe this programming hurt me. You're not really sober if you're taking pain medication. And I had issues with pills before. Just where they just stopped working and just withdrawals, you know, physical. You know, long terms with opiates and physical withdrawals that were horrific. So I was just cut off. It was, it was, I had a bunch of uh, abdominal surgeries that went south. And they just have to, you know, bowel obstructions, bowel obstructions. And so by the time I was barely recovering from surgery, and what I mean is maybe two or three weeks out of the hospital, I was right back having another surgery. It was kind of that clip with a couple of bowel obstructions thrown in there. And so over that course of time, which was about a year and a half, I was on opiates the entire time because I was never not in a post-surgical status. And instead of like weaning me down, it was like, okay, boom, you know, this was in uh, like 2007 and it was horrific. And, uh, you know, I finally found somebody that, that does Suboxone and helped wean me down. The doctor should have worked with me. Because you can build up, just like any medication, you can build up physical dependence. This was at the cusp of all this opiate craze. So in the back of my mind, and I'm going to talk about this when we do my program, I know that opiates are seen as bad, and the government is really going to start making it really difficult. I just already got that in the back of my head. Because there's nothing worse than having something that works and then getting that taken away or not being able to rely on it. Or you have something that works, but you just never can get access to it. In the case for many, that's, that's the subject of opiates. For many people out there, these are life-changing. But they can't get them. Or they can't get them at the quantities that they need. No one understands this. Pro- I mean, what I see, and once again, I'm not a doctor, but I see a lot of misinformation on both sides of this issue. I think there's a lot of truth to we've over-medicated pain. And I think for a bruised ankle and some of these things, I get it. All pain's the same. Having said that, There are certain conditions when all options should be on the table. I'm not trying to be overly dramatic, but these are situations where the pain is like being physically tortured 24-7. That's the human state. For many, even with these medications, that's still going to be the state. It's just intensity may not be as bad. Somebody eventually that's living in continued torture with no end in sight is going to say, fuck it. When somebody's got that as an option, well, you're going you're gonna to lecture them about the fucking medication? Hey, you know, this may, it, fuck that. There are things that work for me that are weird, and I'm going to get at that in a second. But back to A, the 12 steps. Before my accident in 2016, I was a cafeteria AA guy. I just came to the point that it just wasn't working for me. I don't want to go too much into it. I just, I felt like I was becoming a worse person. Now, 
Keep in mind, I was unable to not drink without AA. I would have stayed because my drinking was a problem, dude. And it's just, and I don't ever want to do it again. I cannot handle booze. And I want to be upfront. That dynamic's very true. I can't drink. I am out of control, man. After one beer, next thing I know, I'm running contraband in Cuba, dude. You know, and I'm like, how did this happen? And so that for me is very true. But he's got this message like, hey, man, you know, you get hurt and you get back on painkillers. Oh, dude, then you're going to relapse with pills and you're going to want to drink and da 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 da. This is ringing in my head when I got hurt. Oh, no. I'm not really going to be sober because unlike, I don't know, uh, the Terminator, I can't, you know, this accident, after the accident and the botched surgeries and the bone infection and the slicing me to the spine. Okay, let me describe how they treated my bone infection. They sliced me open to the spine and then they let it close. And I've talked about this before. I, you know, I couldn't reach around there, so there would have to be nurses. This process was like almost a year. Having your, your spine exposed to, like, the elements, even though they're in the room, you know, gee whiz, it stings a little bit. And I was really, really fucked up. I was on heavy-duty shit. But remember, I have AA going through my head. Ooh, ooh. But then I'm like, I'm rationalizing it. By the way, there's nothing wrong with anything I'm doing, but this is like breaking out of some kind of weird religion or something. I'm rationalizing it in case I cross paths with somebody for AA and it somehow comes up and they find out that I'm taking these drugs at these amounts that they're coming from a doctor and I'll, I'll have them on a podcast. I had a doctor to save my life. He understood pain, but he also understood addiction. Now, what I'm getting ready to describe is going to seem like a lot, and it is. And it's why I have problems with opiates, not an addiction problem. Now, I was taking fentanyl, had a 100 milligram fentanyl patch that was to be changed every 48 hours. And then, you know, when we were off the patch, whatever the the Mac Daddy long-term oxys were at the time, whatever that milligram was, it would be like one a day or one every 12 hours. In addition, what well, I don't know these around anymore. It was called Oxy Instant Release. These weren't long acting. These were meant for, quote, breakthrough pain. And I could take up to eight of these a day. Now, I would run out because my pain was so horrific. Luckily, the doc would work with me and we'd bridge it with a lot of times Delot at mid month. He'd write about, you know, 90s worth of Delot. It was a sh- I was taking shitloads of this stuff. And the problem was eventually for me i have the body that just needs a lot of these things and i'll get to a level really quickly where you can't go any higher once again i'm just talking about me after you know a hundred milligram you know 100 milligram fentanyl patch every 48 hours eight oxy instant releases 30 milligram a day and then when I ran out not because I'm zip sometimes I'd make it but when I would run out which would be often around day 20 22 it would be bridged with these Dilaudids which be like up to eight a day I mean a shot of morphine wouldn't even touch me 
I'm sure I could have, like, maybe lived had we even gone much higher than that. Once again, everybody's got a different body type. Somebody doesn't need it at that level, or when it gets to that level, they're fine. My problem is that level I described is not enough, eventually, and you can't go any higher. So, I have to find other methods, eventually. Those kind of things that, you know, really pounding opiates, you know, post-surgical, maybe a week out of the hospital. After that, it should be not needing that. The other dynamic that was happening to me is the opiates would, like, block the pain signals. And I, whatever, my back's not getting the response it's looking for, and so it's like, well, fuck. I was really hypersensitive to pain. You know, just a little thing, my pain would be through the roof because that's the way opiates react with me over the long term. Around the time I realized that my condition, I'm into this thing six years. This is a little after two years of this. I realized I'm going to have to do something different. So I changed my pain management approach. Here is my statement nothing out there is going to help me sit, is going to. You know, this is really bad stuff. But there are things out there that might give me the ability to sit for a couple hours a day. I don't want to get into numbers and descriptions, you know, whose pain's worse than that. I, no, this is not a comparison. In my case, the, let's just say the metric of untreated pain is I'm in bed 24-7. And if I try to sit, it's horrific. That's untreated pain. Not only totally checked out of life, not even able to, to sit up and, 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 you know, read a book, do something at the computer. So it's all laying down in pain, that kind of thing. All right. So if I have no good options, in other words, nothing is going to let me walk again or remove my pain when I sit or give me the ability to sit without, you know, pain 24-7, but... There might be some options that let me sit for a couple hours, but they're all bad options and they all have negative consequences. There's no healthy option. There's no good option. So I select the most effective bad option for me with the least amount of negative consequences. And for me, that happens to be the buprenorphine. Commonly what you find in Subutex, Suboxone, which is used to treat people coming off of opiates, either addiction or physical tolerance. Um, the times I, when I talked my previous time, when they cut me off with pills, eventually I found the doctor, put me on Suboxone, we worked a program and I weaned off. I think Suboxone's amazing, but something I noticed, I told the doctor, I said, you know, for me, there's some pain management qualities. They're not great, but the consequences of the amount of time I needed pain management coupled with the consequences, I might have been better off using Suboxone a little bit more in that two years. But long term for me, you know, my scenarios you can't get anymore. But you got to deal with doctors that can cut you off any minute or the DEA can. There's just too many people that are making decisions that aren't the patient. And the patient's at the whims of all this. I didn't want to put myself in a situation where I could be panicking because the doctor changed their mind. So I was on some boxing. 
and I talked about this when I had my renaissance, my couple month renaissance when I thought it was going to get better. At one time, all I had to do was use medical weed. I was still in horrific pain, don't get me wrong. But it was long-term, the better, better option. If I would have introduced opiates into that, I probably would have had a couple weeks of really good quality of life, followed by much worse than I had going into it, just because of how my body just reacts to these things and metabolizes. They're fantastic short-term for me. For me, they're not long-term. But eventually, as I talked about in one of the episodes, It got to the point, man, when I was regressing and I started realizing that the problem is my spine is bent in three different places and it's shifting and all it's, you know, horrific. And so all this is not in my head. I started, I went to this pain management doctor that specializes in other things besides, you know, your traditional opiates. And he got me on this thing and I'm pissed off about this. It's called Belbuca. And the ingredients read like buprenorphine. I said, why am I taking this instead of Suboxone? And he gave me this song and dance about how, well, you see, this one here, you can keep going up. And I'm like, fuck it. I can't think straight. And I was on Belbuca for Belbuca and wheat. And when I got here to Colorado, uh, when Belbuca changed their um, co-payment assistance, with their assistance before, my co-payment was like about $400 for this stuff. And, you know, you're in pain. You're like, fuck it. And what did this stuff give me? Well, I could sit a little bit more comfortable for an hour or two. Without it, I couldn't sit for an hour or two. That's what it gave me. And uh, the um, when they changed their rules, all of a sudden, the copay would have been 1000 bucks, And I told the pain management. She immediately put me on two milligrams of Suboxone three times a day. And I was on like, I think the the 700 Belbuca, whatever it was, one of their higher values. Yeah, and if anybody knows Suboxone, two milligrams, nothing. And that's what I'm on, right? Two milligrams, and I'm getting ready to stop it before the surgery. For me, it sucks. I wish there could be more pain relief. The pain relief is not great, but it's something, and... Over the course of the long term, it's the better option for me. I'm going to do a special episode on ketamine because that's a subject into itself. But I've also, ketamine started doing ketamine. Um, That happened, uh, this podcast is being recorded September 11th of 2022. First ketamine was December of 2021 and it was after a desperate appointment i was just begging pain management because it was it really was bad um because i i I, what the pain was even when i was laying down it was as bad as i was sitting so i could not escape it no matter what and she got me to got me into ketamine like the next day and that was dramatic in that once again you know I'm not going to sit for long periods of time or run, but it cleared up quite a bit of pain. I'm able to sit after my first ketamine, quote, treatment. I was able to sit five hours a day. I went from not being able to sit and being in just horrific pain, even laying down, to being able to sit at my chair and like podcast and work the computer five hours a day. And it would start wearing off after about two weeks. So I would do it every two weeks because the downside is after a ketamine treatment, 
I sleep almost, no matter no matter what how much sleep I had before, but I'll sleep for like a good 24 to 48 hours after it. And then there's a couple days where my mood's unpredictable. More often than not, I'm pretty depressed. And then I'm great. I would get a couple days. Now I'm doing it once a week, but I told you about the blowback. And right now, we're two weeks from the surgery, so I'm not going to do ketamine this week. I'm going to do it next week. The Suboxone, um, you know, I'm going to stop taking like four days before the surgery. But that's it. That's my quote, pain management journey. There is a lot going on in this area that's not right, that's wrong, that are serious subjects. And I don't want to downplay them because they're important. Access to medication is important. It's critical. A lot of cases is a difference between life and death. But it is not the only issue in pain management. Access to where they're doing these procedures that can fix these botched surgeries or whatever. Access to service. I mean, there's other things. Helping for the caretakers. More resources there. Better insurance options. So if something like this happens, you've got in the future, you've got better insurance coverage, you know, for all the caretaking that some of these things require. Less stress is less pain, too. It's not going to cure anything, but there are more things going on than just the government is not letting people have enough of their medication. I am not downplaying the importance of it. That is critical. But I don't want people to overlook the other things. And in a pain journey, there's a lot of things that, that, that people need that they don't have. Pain management stigmatized. It's, oh, it's just dope. No, it should be more. It should go hand in hand with a physical therapy program and all these different things. The same person that's treating your pain should be managing all the solutions, not just the dope regimen. You know, these conditions are complicated, man, and it takes a team. But under its umbrella, it should be way more than just, here's your pill. Before I close out this episode, I want to make sure I reiterate this point on this subject to the person that is suffering. That person should not be denied access for anything that helps them alleviate their suffering. These situations are horrific. With that said, I want to thank you for listening to this episode in the Countdown in the Soon series and from all of us at the Art of Floundering podcast. Peace and love. Peace and love. Welcome to the Art of Floundering Podcast. Countdown is soon series. Where I attempt to illustrate, quote, life, at least from my perspective, following a so called traumatic accident. 
I had in 2016. So now, between soon, aka my surgery on September 26, 2022, please stay tuned for more new episodes. Countdown to Soon series, right here at the Art of Floundering Podcast. Peace and love. <laughs>